Hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever you're joining us from. If you don't know me, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge Church. And uh, something that's really interesting about being a pastor as your career means you sometimes get some really interesting questions. And I am a youth pastor. So what that often means is that I get to hang out with youth students. And the amazing thing about youth students at this youth group or any youth group is youth are not afraid to ask the questions that nobody thinks it's appropriate to ask. I'll never forget, I was driving with a student um, and we were chatting and I thought this amazing moment was happening where the student turned to me and said, hey, Pastor Dan, can I ask you a question? And in that moment, I'm thinking, am I going to get to lead this student to Christ right now? Is this going to be this powerful moment? Is he going to ask me for advice about something? What, what is God doing in this moment? And, and I look over and I go, of course, uh, what do you want to ask? And he looks at me and with the most genuine thoughtfulness, he asks, what do you even do? Like, what is your job? What do you spend all day doing? Do you just like hang out and drink coffee? Do you just read books all day? Can you explain to me why your job is even a job? And, you know, I got to explain to him what a pastor does do and that we do drink a lot of coffee and we do do a fair amount of reading, but that there's more to it than that. But whether you're a pastor or have another job, oftentimes our jobs need explanation, right? I remember sitting down with my cousin, Alexa, once, and she is a lawyer. And when I sat down with her and we were hanging out and catching up after a few years of not seeing each other, I was asking her all about what it looked like to be a lawyer. Because I've seen TV shows about what it means to be a lawyer. It's intense and it's fast-paced and it's epic courtroom battles. And, and so I asked her, what do you do? tell me about what it's like. And I figured she would give me all these exciting stories and how it would look and all these sorts of things. And it turns out the real thing, at least the way my cousin does it, is quite a bit more boring than what you see on TV. She said, it's a lot of details and it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of filling things out and doing research. It's a lot of send an email and then wait for a response. It's a lot of sitting around and figuring out the exact things that need to be figured out in order to do the job. And what we find in the book of Romans, if you are a person who loves details, is Paul doing exactly that. What he has been doing is slowly and meticulously breaking down the reality that there is something broken in the world. If you're just joining us, we're in this series looking at the first few chapters of the book of Romans, and that is exactly what the author Paul has been doing. Breaking things down little by little, step by step, to show us that there is something wrong with the world. That there is bad news before the good news. He's showing us how all of creation points to the reality of God, leaving no one with an excuse not to recognize him. That there's evidence of God's existence everywhere. He's showing us that God, because he loves us, is willing to turn us over and allow us the free will to turn away from him to our rebellion and to the natural consequences of that. He's showing us and telling us about how the problem of sin is not unique to Gentiles or people who have never read the Bible. It is everyone's issue, including those of us who would claim to follow God. That the hypocrisy of those who claim the name of God is even more serious than the sin of those who don't. And how ultimately everyone is responsible to stand before God and answer for what they did with their life. And just like a good lawyer, Paul is building up the case to present a basic and clear communication of the truth. Now, if you've been around church or you haven't been around church, this is where sometimes we get stumbled up, right? 
Christians are just a bunch of grumpy people who are angry at the world. They're angry that everyone else is out there having fun. They're critical of everything. Everything's terrible. And they spend their lives being grumpy. But what's important for us to realize and us to see in Paul is that Paul is just writing these first opening lines building to something. He's not just being negative. He's telling us the bad news so he can tell us the good news. He's showing the reader just how bleak the situation is. And in Romans chapter 3, where we'll be today, we see him conclude and summarize everything he's been trying to say. We're going to start in verse 9. Here's what Paul says. What shall we conclude then? As in based on everything we've just talked about, based on how bad the world is, how bad we are, how broken everything is, what shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Paul's conclusion after breaking down everything that's broken in the world is this, that we are all, Jewish or Gentile, Christian or not Christian, under the power of sin. And now this is interesting because Paul isn't using the word sin like we sometimes use it. He's not using it as a thing that's been done. He's not using it as a wrong that needs to be fixed. He, he's almost using it as a power which exists in the world that is oppressing humanity. He's saying we are under the power of sin. It's something that's pressing against the way that things were created to be. The Bible's picture of sin from start to end is so much deeper than simply doing a bad thing. Sin is not just broken rules. And that is what Paul has been trying to get at. Sin is about broken humanity. See, from the very beginning, it is easy for us to make the idea of sin all about whether or not you followed the rules. But what Paul is getting at is whether you didn't follow the rules or whether you followed the rules for all the wrong reasons. The point is this, sin is brokenness in all of humanity. And so Paul, writing to his primary religious audience, strings together, puts together a list with a number of references to the Old Testament to demonstrate that everyone, religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, clean and impressive or dirty and shameful, all have the same problem that sin breaks everything. Here's what he writes. As it is written, pointing back to the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are like open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Using these references from the Psalms, and from the prophets, Paul uses scripture to show us just how broken sin has made things. And primarily that's personally, that's the first section. He opens his references and speaks to what he's been talking about all the way through of how our relationship vertically with God has been damaged and even destroyed by the power of sin. That our legal standing before God is one of unrighteousness that our minds have been darkened by sin, 
As one other puts it, ignorance does not cause the hardness of hearts that we don't know about God so we don't love him. Rather, hard-heartedness causes a lack of understanding. That's what Romans 1 and 2 is all about. But Paul pushes further. He even seems to say that our motives are poisoned, right? You read those lines. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. No one does good. You might look at that and say, well, no, I know tons of people who do good. I know lots of people who are after a spiritual experience, trying to pray, trying to ask God for things, seeking out some form of truth out there. But what Paul is saying is you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're not pursuing God to worship him. You're pursuing God because you want something from him. Our motives have been poisoned by sin and our wills themselves have been poisoned by sin so much so that we have run away from God. We have turned our backs on him. But Paul digs even deeper and he shows us what the Bible as a whole shows us, that the brokenness of sin does not just exist between us and God. The brokenness of sin impacts our relationships uh, horizontally as well. First, he talks about how our words are a place where sin thrives. Verse 13, he says, their throats are like open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. See, what starts as brokenness in our identity leaks out into a brokenness in how we speak. This is extremely present in our culture. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, log on to Twitter. Perhaps the most clear picture of how sin has pervaded the world. You guys know the old phrase, right? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's garbage, That's not true because I've had lots of injuries in my life. I've even had a few broken bones. I don't think about them all the time. But for most of us, if you think about your greatest regrets, if you think about the things you wish you could take back most, I would be willing to bet that you can think of things that you have said that on a good day, you could not have imagined yourself saying. That when you look back and wonder, You see the things that you have said, the wounds that you have caused with your words, most often to those closest to you, to a spouse, to a child, to a coworker, to a friend, things that you have said have hurt people. And most of us, all of us carry wounds, things that have been said to and spoken over us, things like you're not enough, Things like you're a failure. Things like you will never get it right. Things that have been spoken over us begin to breathe the same kind of speech that we dole out to others. Our throats become like open graves spewing death. Proverbs 18.21 tells us the tongue has the power of life and death. The Bible talks a lot about how our words impact things. Your words that you choose to use and the words that others have chosen to use in interactions with you hold profound implications for our lives. And sin impacts those things. But even more than just our words, it impacts our actions. Paul carries on, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Even our actions are affected because we begin to compromise. 
Even if we started out with the right ideas, whether it's because of words that have been spoken to us or whether because we simply want what we want and have turned our backs on God, we start to become the same kind of hypocritical that Jonathan spoke to us about last week. We justify ourselves and we condemn others. We use other people as the comparison to judge our sin rather than what God sets out as the law. Paul is rehashing everything he set up to this point. And to really drive the point home, particular to his Jewish audience, he's using the scriptures to do it. Why? Because the idea that Paul has been building to through the whole book up to this point is very clear and he's going to say it right here. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious or we become aware of our sin. See, religion when we practice this idea that if we are good enough, we can earn our ways to God, treat sin like a pool, while reality is like sin is like an ocean. We want to build sin as this thing that, that we know and we understand and we can gauge ourselves against other people. If you think about it like this, think about a few people who are swimmers. You think of myself, who is a terrible swimmer. I worked at camp for years and years. There was a lake. I always wore a life jacket. I ran something um, or was part of something at my camp called the LJC, the Life Jacket Club, meaning that you are cool if you wear a life jacket. I remember one time trying to swim to the middle of the lake and back as a workout and about halfway out into the middle of the lake, I went, I'm going to drown if I don't turn around. This is incredibly hard work. You think about myself, who's not a good swimmer, but then you think about someone like Emily, who is our head lifeguard, who every morning would wake up and swim across the lake and back because that was what she did. She was an incredible, strong swimmer. That's why she was a lifeguard. And then you think about Michael Phelps, right? Olympic champion, one of maybe the greatest athletes of all time, built by God to swim, if you think about it. Everything he does is built around the ability to swim and swim well. And if you put all three of us in a pool, it's going to become quite quick and quite obvious that I cannot do what Emily or Michael Phelps could do, that I am not capable to do it. And we want to treat sin like a pool. It's simple and it's contained and we can understand it, but sin is so pervasive Sin has so infiltrated the world that sin is not like a pool that we can totally comprehend and totally understand. Sin is like an ocean. See, if you put me and Emily and Michael Phelps in the water over at Kitts Beach and say, swim to Japan, I will probably drown first. But Michael is not making it, nor is Emily. The reality is this. Sin is too pervasive to be handled by our skills and our abilities and our work. And that's why God gave us the law. That's what Paul is pointing to. That's what the Bible is speaking about it. Think about it. The Ten Commandments, right? If you go read the Ten Commandments, how far can you get before you realize you failed? Number one, have no other gods before me. Can you honestly say there's never been a time in your life you've had something ahead of God in your life? And you say, well, no, I, I haven't. I've always done it. But then you go and you read the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he says things like, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've even looked on another person in lust, you already have. Jesus goes and he ups the ante. Even if we think we're righteous, Jesus shows us that we're not. Think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he says, I've followed all these since I was young. I've done all the right stuff. But then Jesus finds the thing that he has placed ahead of God. And he says, well, this is what you must give up, your money. The Bible tells us he walks away sad because he had a great deal of money and too much love for it. If you think about what happens after that story, Jesus, it says in Matthew 19, verse 23, said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and they asked, then who can be saved? They hear this, they hear this teaching of Jesus. They hear what Jesus is saying about what it actually looks like to completely obey and understand and fulfill the law as a human being. And they come to the inevitable conclusion, who can be saved? Like if this is what it's gonna take to be saved, no one's gonna make it. Can anyone do this? And Jesus' response is so beautiful. He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, this moment, this concept is what the whole Bible has been building to. So often we open up our Bibles as Christians or if you're just exploring faith and we're supposed to be able to find Jesus and experience what God wants for us and take something out of it and learn and grow and and what ends up happening often and maybe you're in the Bible in a year plan right now with us and, and this is what you're struggling with is it feels confusing and complicated. And if we're honest, sometimes it feels boring. It feels like, what is this even about? How does this connect? I, I, I don't see it. It feels like what we read about, if we're actually honest with ourselves, brings us more so to discouragement than encouragement. Look at all these commands. Look at all these expectations. Look at all these things that I am supposed to be doing, and I can't seem to do it. Hakeem Bradley, a theologian who helps create content with the Bible Project, recently explained um, that this is exactly what the Bible is trying to do. So the Old Testament creates a silhouette. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin and sin breaks into the world and death comes into the world, there is a promise given that the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. God promises to save And the entire Old Testament creates this silhouette. So Cain and Abel are born and you go, okay, is it Cain and Abel? Are they the seed of the woman that's gonna crush the serpent's head? That goes terribly wrong. There's murder, there's pain, there's hurt. And okay, I guess that's not it. When when is this gonna come? Maybe it's Noah. Okay, God's wiped away the earth and he's restoring it. And and Noah's this kind of new hero figure and and he's the seed that's gonna crush this. Oh no, it goes really wrong with him too. Well, maybe Abraham, Abraham shows up and God speaks to him and and calls him and does this thing. Maybe Abraham and, and then God gives Abraham a promise and says, you will be the one who ultimately blesses many nations and many people. And so kind of he's this figure, but, but what does that mean? And the whole Old Testament story after story builds this silhouette of a hero that's supposed to come, of a Messiah, of a savior, 
And yet everyone who is meant to fill that role fails. Kings and prophets, warriors and, and leaders, they all can't quite live up to what this hero is meant to do. And then the New Testament reveals that the silhouette is of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. And that's what Paul is building to in the book of Romans. That's what he is building through these first few chapters to show us that the Bible is not about us. The law is not about us. The rules and regulations are not about somehow us holding on tight enough and working hard enough that we might be able to work our way to God because we cannot do it on our own. Please hear me when I say this. You will not be saved because you are a good person. You will not be saved because you are from a Christian family. You will not be saved because your life looks good on the outside. You will not be saved because you sit in church on a Sunday morning. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritans who were known for going straight for the reality, says this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that has made it necessary. But here's the beauty. Every great story needs a problem to be solved needs brokenness to be healed, needs conflict to be resolved. You wouldn't enjoy a movie where nothing went wrong. Can you imagine that Avengers movie, right? You go to the theater and it's like Captain America and Iron Man and whoever else, they sit down and everything's fine. That's a terrible movie. Nobody wants to see that movie. But the beauty of the gospel is that there is something broken, there is something wrong, but that is not the end of the story. Because Paul, after building up this case for our need, sets about telling us how God responds to the power of sin that has invaded the world. Here's what he writes in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. One commentator reflecting on this paragraph says that this is the most important paragraph ever written. This is the hope in which followers of Jesus place all their trust. This is the good news that speaks to the bad news. This is the light that breaks into the darkness, the water that washes away the dirt and the muck and the mire with which we feel covered. Ephesians 2.8 captures it even more concisely. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is what we call the Christian doctrine of justification. 
It is the core picture of what we are about to celebrate over Easter weekend as we gather together that through Christ's willing sacrifice on a Roman cross and his bearing of the full weight of the wrath of God against sin, we are at the same time fully cleansed of our sin, fully made clean and given or imputed the righteousness of Jesus. And in the doctrine or, or in this idea of justification, we see how the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit worked and willed to save all of us. Firstly, we see it that it is a gift from the Father. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Most of us know that verse off by heart, but listen to the second. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, what we need to understand, what we need to know, what we need to look at God and see is that God loves us, that God desires to save us. The Bible tells us that God desires that all should be saved. John three sixteen, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal Life. Verse 17 is also so important for God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Here's what you need to know, my friends. God's base, baseline emotion towards you is love. It's compassion and it's grace. When Paul in Exodus meets Moses and Moses asks God to describe who he is, God's own self-description opens with God saying this, I am compassionate and I am gracious. That does not take away from the reality of sin. That does not take away from the reality of God's wrath or God's justice. But what we need to understand is that God's primary emotion towards us is love. James 2.13 says it's mercy that triumphs over judgment. Or here's how the great reformer Martin Luther described this. That is the mystery, which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. Theologians have called this the great exchange. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them in the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. But the question we need to understand is how does this happen? How can God be fully just but also forgive and excuse sin? And that's quite clear. That's what the gospel is all about through the son's sacrifice. Verse 24, Paul writes, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. See, God is fully just. God does not leave the guilty unpunished and he has been clear. The wages of sin is death. God cannot and will not overlook sin. And to be honest, do we want a God that does that? 
Do you want a God that looks at sin and brokenness and the evil in the world and goes, ah, no big deal. We want a God that brings about justice. We're desperate for a God that brings about justice. I have no interest in following a God who does not care about justice and simply saves the world by pretending like nothing bad happened. There can be no reconciliation without justice. And that is why Jesus came to give his life as the penalty for sin. Tim Keller puts it this way. God does not set his justice aside. He turns it on himself. God's justice and God's grace meet at the cross. That is why the cross is the central image of our faith as followers of Jesus. It is where God's full mercy meets God's full wrath. It is where we see that love, true and deep and everlasting love, is sacrificial. It is not selfish. It is not proud. It is not arrogant. It is sacrificial, even to the point of death. Paul carries on. He said, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and those who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, God is just and he is the justifier. He brings about full justice and he is the one who justifies. That is why the core statement we put our hope in as followers of Jesus is Jesus on the cross saying what? It is finished. That Jesus, as he hung, as he bled, as he died, proclaims the requirements of the law have been fulfilled and I give them to you. All your sin, past, present, and future have been redeemed, restored, and made right through the work of Jesus on the cross. That is what the gospel is. That is why the cross is so central. But how do we come to understand this? It's only by the Spirit's work. See, if you're reading this paragraph in Romans, this key little paragraph that looks at Jesus' sacrifice for us, you keep seeing this little word pop up again and again and again, faith. That's because it's only by faith that we can experience this. Paul knows that even the most incredible and logical argument can only get you so far. We, you, me, anyone you know, desperately needs the Spirit of God to enliven and awaken our hearts to the reality of the gospel. To awaken us and bring us to life in a way that no moral philosophy, no intellectual understanding, no book or words could ever do. In John 16, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. What is Jesus saying? No one can come to faith in Jesus. No one can truly understand the power and the beauty of what Jesus has done except by the work of the Spirit in their lives. 
the book of Romans, as much as it is a legal argument for the reality of the gospel and the sacrifice that Jesus has made, it is so clear, so logical, so practical. Paul still acknowledges the reality that unless the Spirit of God works in a person, they are dead. That what we need is the Spirit of God to awake in us. Later in a letter to Corinthians, he writes, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of the age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what we preach. The Jews ask for signs. The Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolish to the Gentiles. Here's my question. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to see the power and the beauty and the glory of the gospel? The power and the beauty and the glory of the cross the power and the beauty and the glory of the resurrection that changes everything and creates you to be a new person? Or are you holding God in an intellectual arm's length? Have you boiled your faith down to a moral philosophy about what it means to be a good person? Have you settled for an idea of following God that is more about what you look like on the outside than what the Spirit has done as an inward reality? Here is my invitation to you today. You are invited to receive the gift of grace that God offers. To be justified, to be made right before God through the sacrifice and the blood shed by Jesus, the sacrifice of the Son, and to experience God, to experience faith, to experience the power of the gospel, not by your own work, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul asks, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith, for we maintain, we believe that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify this the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. See, if we are saved through Jesus and not ourselves, there is nothing to boast about. The law, all the rules and regulations that I try to follow, all those do is show me how desperately I need a savior. My heritage, my family background, my works, all that shows is that God is a God who saves by faith, not by ethnicity or family background. And if we're not careful, we stumble into this boasting and it might not be vocal, but it might be internal. And what boasting leads to is all these different things that cause this strife and this hurt in our lives. For some of you, that boasting looks like arrogant pride. 
Some of you genuinely believe that because of your, your works, because of how moral you are, because of the way your life looks on the outside, you genuinely believe, even if you wouldn't say it out loud, that you are better than other people. That you are more righteous than other people because look at how good your life is. Look at how much you don't sin versus how much others do. You are looking at sin like a pool instead of like an ocean. You are comparing yourself against other people rather than the law of God itself. But for some of you, it's quieter. For some of you, it's denial. It's a denial of the way that things are. You're refusing to admit that sin in your life is sin. You're pretending like your porn problem is not a real issue. You're pretending like your anger problem is not a real issue. You're pretending like whatever you do in your business to make money, even though it is wrong, is not a real issue. You are, in the words of Romans, suppressing the truth and denying the reality that you are a sinner in desperate need of grace. You are pretending. For some of you, this boasting plays itself out like anxiety. You're stressed all the time. You're trying so hard to be impressive, to do the right thing, to show everyone how serious you are about your faith. But you are terrified of failure. You are terrified of your weakness. You won't let anyone see what you're struggling with or how you are hurting because you don't want anyone to know how hard it has been. Whatever your boasting might look like, it's this kind of boasting that creeps its way in so easily. And it's why we have to come again and again and again back to the cross to see the reality that we are saved by grace and grace alone. Not by our works, not by our goodness, not by our righteousness, not by the law, but by what Jesus has done. St. Augustine famously wrote, Christ is the bread awaiting our hunger. The only thing we bring to our salvation is a hunger to be saved, to know that we cannot feed or, thirst or provide thirst for ourselves, that Jesus himself has been the bread and the cup. Christ is the bread awaiting hunger. So may I invite you today, would you bring your hunger to Jesus? Stop pretending like you're not hungry. Stop thinking that you have got it figured out all on your own. Christian or not, I invite you today to experience your hunger and be met by the goodness and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you as we close. Father, thank you so much that you love us so much that you sent your son for us. Jesus, thank you so much that you willingly went to the cross, that you put aside that you put aside the glory and the honor that was due you in order to make us right before God. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are at work in the lives of each and every person hearing this right now, that you are doing something in our lives to try and awaken us to the reality that you are there and that you love us. And so God, we come before you right now and I ask, Lord, that by your power, by your grace, by your mercy, and by your love, that we would experience the reality that we have been made right before you. 
that God, when you look at us, you do not see our sin, you do not see our shame, you do not see our brokenness, but you see the righteousness of Christ. And so Lord Jesus, let us live into that reality, live into the new life that you have offered us. Let us put our faith and our hope and our trust in that. And we pray all these things in your glorious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.